Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Kevin West is from rural Blount, Blount County in eastern Tennessee. Oh, Blunt. Blunt County. Like Blunt? Yeah. Blunt County in eastern Tennessee. Um, and uh, went to uh, experimental college in the White Mountains of California. Um, for 13 years, he was on staff at W Magazine with postings in the fabulous New York, Paris, and here in Los Angeles, where he was the West Coast editor, and he still lives here in LA. Um, he runs the blog Saving the Season, writes about food, culture, and travel, and produces a retail collection of jams and marmalades, which, by the way, are delicious. I had the boysenberry, so good. Um, certified as a master food preserver, uh, and uh, he is here this evening with his new with his new book, Saving the Season, uh, where we're all going to learn about a lot of amazing things to eat. Please welcome Kevin West. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Um, thank you, Skylight Books, so much for having me. This is, um, I know it's a little odd to um, have a reading from a cookbook, but it's, this is sort of an odd cookbook. Um, I, um, you know, I'm a liberal arts major. <laughs> um, and I think because of the, the lingering influence of that education, when I started preserving, um, I got really interested in the world around preserving. So not just the recipes, but also what you can learn uh, from, uh, well, from a subject when you, when you look at it closely. And so the, the book, um, the blog really, the blog originally was supposed to be just a kitchen log, and then it turned into something else. And the book is a kind of document of that journey of discovery about the world that, um, that began with, um, with some jam. Um, so I'm just, there's a, there's a lot of narrative writing in here for, for a cookbook, um, and I'm just going to read a, a couple of little short uh, selections to give you a, a feel for what the book's about. This is the preface. This is a book about preserving and home canning, or putting up, as one might say where I'm from, and it will cover jam, jelly, marmalade, and other sweet preserves, pickles and briny things, canned tomatoes, liqueurs, candies, and the complement of condiments that includes relishes, sauces, and salsas. Why bother preserving? Well, so that you can eat your efforts later, of course, and give them to other people to eat too. I do it to save the season. Putting up used to be how plenty prepared for want. Foodstuffs were processed in a season of abundance, when the wild blackberries came in, when hogs were slaughtered at the first cold snap, and brought out to eat in some later time of scarcity. Today we don't suffer the winter hunger known for most of human history because the grocery store is always stocked. Not that, that long, not that long ago, however, it was the agricultural cycle, it was nature, that determined what was on the table, and lusty eaters had to anticipate the harvest of each month when gardens, orchards, fields, woods, rivers, oceans, and skies delivered a copious annual bounty of a particular thing at a particular moment. We've forgotten today to wait for seasonal delicacies, and as a punishment, the grocery store has become a year-round warehouse of indifferent fruit and vegetable staples, some of which are absurdly imported from the ends of the earth. Just a generation ago, which is to say when I was little, strawberries were a cause for celebration in the spring. My mother and I made annual trips to a pick-your-own farm, where we were always amazed by how good the strawberries were and by how quickly you could pick more than you could eat. 
In August, we visited my West grandparents, Grand and Papal. Grand and Papal come up a lot in the book. Uh, the book is dedicated to them. Um, in August, we visited my West grandparents, Grand and Papal, and when we returned to South Carolina from their farm in Blount County, Tennessee, my mother's baby blue VW Bug would be loaded literally to the roof with bags of corn, buckets of okra and squash, watermelons, and flats of Papal's homegrown tomatoes. Papal would say, there's only two things that money can't buy, and that's true, true love and homegrown tomatoes. <laughs> when Grand put them up in a quart mason jar, Papaw's tomatoes were as good in January as they had been in August. And that's what I mean by saving the season. So, oh my God, we've lost this. I don't know, can you all hear me? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're not a big group, and I, I can talk up. Um, the, uh, yesterday was the official pub date. Um, yesterday, by sheer coincidence, was also uh, Gran's uh, birthday. Gran is gone, but yesterday she would have been 97 years old. And being a southerner, I'm a little superstitious, of course, so I, um, I, I uh, attribute great significance to the fact that the book um, hit on her, uh, uh, on her, on her birthday. Um, but that's just to say that this is the first uh, time I've done one of these. So um, I was, this afternoon I was wondering what in the world I was going to read tonight, and then I thought, oh, it's a bookstore. And there were two bookstores that were very important to me um, when I was working on this uh, cookbook, and um, I wrote a little piece about them, and I'm going to read that piece now. This is the recipe introduction for agridolce, excuse me, for agridolce spring onions. Yields one pint. <laughs> there used to be a store in West Hollywood called the Cook's Library, and after I got serious about preserving, I repeatedly threw money at it. Not that there were many books on the shelf marked jams and pickles at the way back of the store, but by the time I could navigate the other sections there and back, I'd have a leaning pile of things that I just had to have. Books are a vice, and never let anyone tell you otherwise. The best of the jams and pickles shelf included Christine Ferber's Mes Confitures, which I read with wonder, uh, especially her recipes for fig and Gewürztraminer with pine nuts, white cherry with raspberry, and banana with bittersweet chocolate. But the book was, for me, as full of frustration as inspiration, and Madame Ferber led me to, re to ruin many pounds of good fruit. One got the impression that she had published her cookbook to avoid telling anything about how she actually makes preserves. So French. The Cook's Library also delivered me Thane Prince's Jellies and Jams, uh, Jellies, Jams, and Chutneys, which tells a preserving story from the other side of the channel. Prince is a food journalist who clearly knows her way around the preserving repertory, and I learned a lot from her. You might even say she was one of my teachers. But the book is dinky. Somehow you feel as if it's the cheap digest version of a, of a larger guidebook, which is what I would rather have had. Also, there's something scatterbrained about jellies, jams, and chutneys. Prince raises points and then briskly marches on without addressing them. Or she'll send you to such and such a page to learn more, and the detour proves to be a, a blind alley. Prince doesn't bother with the uh, boiling water bath either. If y'all are canners, you know what I mean. If not, I'll address it in questions. Uh, Prince doesn't bother with the boiling water bath either, preferring instead such charmingly antiquated closures as cellophane seals, which are more closely related to the 19th century than the 21st. So British. About the time that I'd made myself a regular at the Cook's Library, it went out of business. Feeling stymied, I trolled the internet for obscure dealers in cookbook arca arcana, and to my genuine surprise, found one named Janet Jarvitz in Pasadena. I noted her coordinates and set out, unaware that I had more or less found the address of Alibaba's cave. The Jarvitz treasury is guarded by cats. <laughs> As you approach, a feline odor emerges to greet you on the sidewalk. And when you enter the door, a cat or two will swirl around you the way that waves cling to your ankles when you walk at the beach. But to behold the view from inside Jarvitz's door is to believe her claim to have 30,000 volumes. The shop, is a the shop is a stupefaction of cookbooks, scholarly editions of 19th century classics like Lettuce Bryan's The Kentucky Housewife, which is a real wonder, it's a masterpiece. Um, 1843, I think is the date. Uh, collectible early printings of The Joy of Cooking and cast-off dollar copies of the latest from Rachel Ray. Shoppers are welcome, provided they don't take up too much space. The passageways are mere cracks between book-lined cliffs. Jarvis herself looked like nothing Jarvitz herself looked nothing like what I had imagined. Tanned and sinewy, she might have passed for a rah-rah triathlete, but she spoke quietly and gave the impression of being painfully shy. Because she seemed to know everything about her subject, however, she also, she also visibly enjoyed having her expertise tapped. 
On a subsequent visit, when I asked her for something on the history of Thanksgiving, Jarvitz mentioned an article published a decade earlier in an academic journal. After scouting a chaotic corner of the store <clears throat> for half a minute, she handed it to me. I was floored. And unless my eyes failed me, she allowed herself a glimmer of due self-congratulation. On that first trip to Jarvis's Emporium, I reluctantly left only when my pile threatened to become too heavy to carry. Among the finds was a 1950s hardback, no dust jacket, with an orange binding illustrated with a buxom woman in a mutton sleeve gown, her arms upraised and her mouth operatically open. Behind her appears to be the London Bridge. The book's title is non sequitur, West Coast Cookbook. I'd never heard of the author, Helen Brown, and the book devotes only four pages out of a 400 plus, out of 400 plus recipes to preserves and pickles, but the recipes for cherry olives, bodega beans, and Tiburon onions grabbed me. The book costs four bucks, which is for a good, uh, which for a few good recipes would be a bargain at twice the price. At home, I made Tiburon onions with onions the size of ping pong balls, and they were delicious, with sweet golden raisins balanced against the sour of wine and vinegar. A little tomato paste provided color, herbs, and earthy depth. It was an unfussy and efficient recipe that yielded masterful results. So American. I studied Mrs. Brown's volume more closely. Its publication antedated the opening of Chez Panisse by nearly 20 years, but it sings the praises of the Pacific Slope in the same seasonal regional key as Alice Waters, whom my generation esteems as the inventor of California cuisine. Brown devotes wonderful chapters to fruit, vegetables, seafood, and salads, and she writes knowledgeably about olives and olive oil, herbs and spices, wine, <clears throat> all rather specialized subjects for her era. She currently dismisses convenience food and recipes that rely on them. Committed to the multiple cuisines of California's immigrant communities, Brown demonstrates a knowledge of Latino and Asian cooking and sound judgment on which foreign recipes will best adapt to the mainstream table. Her collection of game recipes, venison, small birds, rabbit, bear, squirrel, is one of the best I've seen anywhere. What's more, the tone of Brown's writing conveys the sunny, confident, unpretentious, democratic gumption of those who for 150 years have moved west to avoid the convention-bound strictures of back east. She writes in her introduction, this is a book of West Coast cuisine, if anything as simple as our cookery can be called a cuisine. These are the recipes that show the versatility of our cooks, not the high-salaried exponents of la haute cuisine, but the cooks, both male and female, who are fascinated by the kitchen and whose greatest pleasures lie in discovering some new ways to serve some old familiar food. West Coast cooks improvise. This is still her. They <clears throat> West Coast cooks improvise. They ever ha uh, excuse me. They have ever since in the early days they had to use whatever was on hand or else starve. Today they still improvise, although they are blessed with plenty, and they frequently do it with remarkable success. That is why we not only believe we should have the finest food in the world, we don't honestly see how we can avoid it. I loved her immediately. Um, astonishingly, Mrs. Brown's volume anticipates the food trends of the past decade, the local, seasonal, artisanal, vegetable-based, cross-cultural, mindful, and whole food approach to eating. Who was this woman? Once I knew, I felt sad that I even had to ask. History teaches us that fame is fleeting, sick transit Gloria Mundi, and Helen Brown's too brief afterlife proves it. According to the Oxford Companion to American Food and Drink, Brown was born in 1904 and lived her married life in Pasadena, which coincidentally was the birthplace of uh, Julia Child, as you all probably know already. By the late 1930s, she was known <clears throat> Brown was known in New York as the West Coast Food Establishment, and her professional cohorts included Child and Craig Claiborne. James Beard was a close friend of hers. They co-wrote a book together on outdoor cooking in 1955 and maintained a twice-weekly correspondence that was published in 1944. The Oxford Companion confides, quote, Beard was deeply attached to her. She functioned somewhat as an older sister. Uh, Brown died of cancer in 1964. When I got to the end of that entry, I was startled by the name of its author, Janet Jarvitz. Later, on another trip to the shop, I asked Jarvitz about it. She had not known Brown, but as a young dealer in 1994, Jarvitz had bought the bulk of Brown's cookbook collection from the author's estate. Some of the 10,000 books had been damaged in a fire after Brown's death, others had been chewed by rats, but the purchase helped establish Jarvitz's name in the book trade. I asked her why Brown isn't more famous today. 
I don't know, said Jarvitz. Maybe she died too soon. Brown's Tiburon Onions inspired one of my favorite, savor one of my favorite savory recipes um, in the book. Uh, my version is faithful to the original, apart from some small tweaks to the seasoning, some explanatory notes. Agrodolce means sweet and sour in Italian. Tiburon is a seaside village in Marin County. Tiburon is the Spanish word for shark. Agrodolce spring onions would go well with any grilled meaty fish, like tuna, marlin, and naturally, shark. <laughs> um, you want one more? Yeah. One more, sort of, uh, it's probably about the same length as that one. It's a couple pages, three pages. Um, the news of the day, the news from the Supreme Court is what made me want to read this one. <clears throat> uh, this is a road trip, this is a road trip. Cherry time in late May. Green Valley, Green Valley is, is my house in Laurel Canyon and so the road trips are all at Green Valley to someplace. So this was Green Valley to Johnson Hollow, Tennessee. Johnson Holler, as we might properly say. <clears throat> My father, Fred West, was born and raised in Blount County, Tennessee. Thirty years ago, he commenced his preparations to die in Union County, about an hour's drive to the north, when he and Bob Sharp built themselves a house and planted a garden in Johnson Holler, a topographic crumple in the backwoods community of Sharp's Chapel. My father was in fine health then, as he is today, thank goodness, but moving to a place as remote and insular as Johnson Holler is tantamount to declaring that you don't intend to leave again. Some may not be entirely familiar with the old-fashioned word hollow. The best explanation I know comes from Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape, which is a really magnificent reference book edited by Barry Lopez, um, the author of Larry Post Lopez of um, uh, Arctic Dreams. <clears throat> this is what uh, Home Ground has to say about the hollow. Throughout most of the North American continent, a hollow is a scooped out place in the land. The term is used to describe many features, a small sheltered valley, as in Washington Irving's Legend of Sleepy Hollow, or in the Catskill Mountains of New York State, a notch or pass in the mountains. In A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains, that's the title of the book, Isabella Bird writes, quote, of the blue hollow at the foot of Long's Peak, where the hoarfrost crisps the grass every night of the year, end quote. Uh, deep within the Appalachian Mountains, however, the word is pronounced holler and is used to describe the seam where two mountains join. In a hollow, land rises up on three sides. Up the crease, that is to say, up the um, upstream, up the creek, right? Um, and, uh, and so up each flank of the mountain. So like that, and then like that, if that makes sense. The sun shines in a holler only a few hours a day, and the woods within are dark and dense. Quote, most hollers don't have no view, observes Granny Younger in Lee Smith's novel, Oral History. Small hollows are sometimes called cloves, likening them to the space in a goat's splayed hoof. End of entry. My dad and Bob built an actual log cabin in Johnson Holler on land, on land deeded to them by Bob's family, descendants of the community's 19th century pioneer, Thomas Sharp. They have since moved two miles down the hollow to the old Walker Place, which is a pretty little farm of 100 acres that sits in a broad spot where Johnson Hollow joins a small valley, which is why there's enough sun there for sour cherries. In 2009, my dad called to say that for once the sour cherry cr crop had escaped frost damage and that his four trees were loaded down. He threw netting over them and hung CDs among the branches to scare the birds. He called me weekly with updates. Luck stayed with us. The weather held. The birds were thwarted, and when the cherries finally started to turn, I booked a ticket home for cherry time. The sour cherry, Prunus cerasus, is one of the stone fruit clan, which also includes peaches, apricots, and plums. It is a different species from the sour, uh, excuse me, from the sweet cherry, which is Prunus avium, a name that testifies to the fruit's popularity among the avian tribes. George Washington did not chop down a sour cherry tree. But then he didn't chop down a sweet cherry tree either. That story was made up by Parson Weems in his Life of George Washington, which the subtitle promises is full of curious anecdotes meant to instruct the nation's young citizenry. Cherries probably originated in Western Asia, but birds and man spread them across Europe in prehistoric times. According to the food historian Magulan Toussaint-Sama, evidence from the Stone Age uh, Evidence from Stone Age sites suggests that wild cherry juice was being fermented even before grapes were first turned into wine. Cherries were cultivated by the ancient Greeks and Romans, but curiously, the fruit figures far less in our myth and literature than apples. 
Maybe it's the cherry's unheroic size. Rabelais caricatures a friar of parsimonious speech. Uh, quote, uh, nothing is to be got out of him but monosyllables. With the sarcastic jest, I believe he would make three bites of a cherry. Cherries also have a distinctly feminine con connotation in the poetic tradition. The fruit is firm, dainty, roundly curved, and highly perishable, making it a perfect symbol of delicious but fleeting virginal beauty. The cherry was associated with the Virgin Mary for Renaissance painters, and theologians considered it a fruit of heaven in contrast with the apple, which represented man's fall. At the very dawn of the Renaissance, Italian poet Petrarch wrote his Rima Sparse, and it set off a craze for love poetry that burned through Europe for centuries. Countless imitators used his 14-line sonnet form and also embraced his highly wrought metaphors of skin as white as snow and cheeks like rose petals. Finally, the cherry's moment in poetry had arrived. In the most florid lyric poems of the age, the lover's face becomes an entire garden as in uh, Thomas Campion's There is a Garden in Her Face. There is a garden in her face where roses and white lilies and, excuse me, there is a garden in her face where roses and white lilies grow. A heavenly paradise is that place wherein all pleasant fruits do flow. There cherries grow which none may buy till cherry ripe themselves do cry. Cherry ripe was the call used by street vendors hawking their wares, and the sound must have echoed through London streets every spring. Uh, this is the poem Cherry Ripe from Robert Herrick, uh, 1591 to 1674, his dates. Cherry ripe, 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 I cry, full and fair ones, come and buy. If so be you ask me where they do grow, I answer there, where my Julia's lips do smile. There's the land, or cherry isle, whose plantations fully show all the year where cherries grow. Fast forward a few more centuries to our own time, and the cherry still retains a residue of sensual appeal. The cherry on top is an extra something that caps a series of happy events. Even the cherry's erotic associations endure, as in the crude slang for virgin. Uh, the film The Witches of Eastwick, based on John Updike's novel, shows the devil, played by Jack Nicholson, and his coven of beautiful witches luxuriating by a pool and sucking down great bowls full of cherries. By means of a dark spell, the devil makes a local religious freak vomit up the pits until her husband bludgeons her to death with a phallic poker. In a more lyrical mood, Pablo Neruda writes in 20 love poems and one song of despair, I want to do with you what spring does with cherry trees. Sweet and sour cherries have been grown side by side at least since the time of Lucullus. Lucullus? Lucullus. Uh, Pliny or Pliny? Anybody? Is it Pliny or Pliny? Pliny? Pliny. Uh, Pliny the Elder uh, credits the, you can see I read and write more than I talk. Um, <laughs> Pliny the Elder uh, credits the famous gourmet, Lucullus, with introducing cherries to Italy, but scholars have withdrawn that honor, noting that the earlier Etruscans already had cherry orchards. Sour cherries are less popular today than they were 50 years ago, no doubt because they live up to their name. The second one's not as bad, is how my dad puts it. You have to get past that acid surprise to appreciate the flavor. The sour cherry is really a cooking fruit. My favorite dessert when I was growing up was Grand's Cherry Cobbler, made with sour cherries from two geriatric trees in the middle of Papaw's garden. Sour cherry pie is much better than sweet cherry pie, and the same is true of preserves. Sour cherry's only real drawback is that the pitting is tedious work. You extract the seed this way. Grasp a single cherry between the thumb and forefinger of one hand. With the other hand, hold its stem. Simultaneously squeeze with one hand, while tugging with the other, and the pit will separate from the flesh. That motion must be repeated hundreds of times to prep for a batch of cherry preserves. In fact, um, let me say, I had a, 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 an incredible book, uh, editorial intern who worked for me one summer on this book. And um, he had made all kinds of, of great contributions. Um, and one of the things that I asked him to do um, came at the end of a long day where I had been out to pick sour cherries in the morning and then I'd come home to make a, a batch of, of sour cherry jam. And picking sour cherries takes forever because sour cherry is really small. It's like a fourth the size of a sweet cherry. So you have to pick cherries forever and then you get home and you just pit them forever and it just takes hours. And I started to think, how many motions does it require to make this batch of sour cherry jam? Um, well, that I couldn't answer, but um, I took the pits from five pounds of sour cherries, and I gave them to intern Edward. And I said, would you count these for me? And there were, and there were 808 pits in five pounds of sour cherries. 
So that motion must be repeated hundreds of times to prep for a batch of cherry preserves. A mature cherry tree produces a harvest that is measured by the bushel. Planting one is a commitment to substantial future labor. In places like Sharp's Chapel, though, that work is often spread, sped along by conviviality. At my dad's farm is where I realized that canning work can be a social time, almost a form of entertainment. One afternoon, as my dad and I were in the kitchen pitting cherries, pitting the cherries that we had picked that morning, the phone rang, likely a neighbor or relative, which are two categories that overlap substantially in Sharp's Chapel. Hey, said Bob, taking the call, what you doing? He must have been asked the same question, because next he said, Fred and Kevin are down here in cherries. They picked about 12 gallon. After a brief further exchange, Bob hung up the phone and said, that was Dot. She said she's coming. Bob's sister Dot was soon walking in the back door. I hear you is in cherries, she said. Well, what took you so damn long, said my dad, in a tone he has that makes anything funny. Dot poured herself a cup of black coffee, took one of Bob's cigarettes, and sat down at the table. After a minute or two to settle in and find her work rhythm, she started in with the news of the day. Who's pregnant? Who won the basketball tournament? Who will be coming in next week to visit so-and-so in the hospital where things are not looking too good? Over the next hour or so, there was talk of cherry pitting technique and cherry recipes, a recitation of stories, many already familiar, expressions of regret and relief about the weather's impact on this year's gardens, inquiries into the source of someone's particularly fine fruit trees or vegetables. To me, these conversations are what I most value about going home because I always learn something around the table, much of it useless to other people, but precious to me, like that my Uncle David sour cherry tree grew from a start off of Papa's old trees, and therefore could provide a start for me if I ever had a place for an orchard. I guess you could characterize the afternoon as spending quality time with my father, but I would not. I'd call it pitting cherries together, and at the end of it, we were ready to make cherry preserves. <laughs> So, um, so we'll do a Q&A. Anybody has any questions? Yes, ma'am. Have you ever seen a movie called The Draftsman's Contract? No. Uh, what is it called? The Draftsman's Contract. I got, I've got to know that. Um, it was a movie about uh, a kid who was in the 1700s, and a lady was in an estate, and they had orange trees on it. Yeah. And they hired a man to come and illustrate well, the husband was on vacation from right. the estate. She hired an artist who was to draw 13 illustrations of the um, man's share, uh, gardens. Yes. And it's really uh, fun to watch. I saw it last year. I, you have to see it if it's on the big screen. Yeah. It's a whole different And it's just fun to yeah. watch. Uh, and then there's a thing of eating fruit, the way to give the artist some pretty periodic oh, yeah, it's really charming uh Pete Rent, I think it's Peter Runaway. Okay. G R E. Oh sure sure. Like yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah. Yeah, it's the same. So there's I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because the um um there's a series of, of, of little short essays in here on the development of still life painting. Um, I was, uh, and I'm, I'm really interested in, in sort of references, why I write it down. I'm really interested in the, the places where, um, where talk of seasons, where talk of jam, where talk of, uh, of, uh, of uh, pickles, um, it sort of pops through in the, in the literature and in the, in the art history. Um, you know, Melville writes about pickles. Um, Melville at least mentions pickles. There's a, there's a wonderful um, allusion to pickles, or sort of use of pickles as a metaphor in um, um, uh, um, uh, the, uh, Antony and Cleopatra. Um, Cleopatra is, is, gets mad at a messenger, and she beats the messenger, and she um, threatens to lash him with, uh, with wire and stew him in lingering pickle. Um, he was about to find himself in a pickle, as we still say. So in a situation that stings, right? Um, um, in a, well, in a jam, jam, the, the jam comes along much later. But Shakespeare didn't didn't um, have the word jam. Um, jam, as we understand it, jam in its culinary use, um, and I write about the etymology of jam in here, um, didn't come around around until um, you know, um, kind of early 19th century. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, 18th century. 18th century. I just found out briefly last month. I was looking at uh, 
uh, raspberry farm jams and, and preserves. I and I, I got the impression that preserves have the seeds in them and jam. No, ma'am, oh, that is not correct. Um, but so um, that is that's boysenberry jam right there. Um, Boysenberry is um, it's one of the brambleberries. I'm going to get to your question, but I'm going to take a sort of circuitous route to get there. Um, it's one of the brambleberries. Um, the brambles are, are a fascinating family of fruit. Um, Tom, thanks y'all for coming. Crescent, nice to see you. Um, and I, I sort of sort of chart out the family, um, the genealogy, because it, it's a little complicated to get through. Um, boysenberries across between the raspberry line and the blackberry line um, of, uh, of brambleberries. Um, it's a, it's a Southern California um, fruit. It's one of the few um, uh, brambleberries that really thrives here in our climate, and it was the um, it was the fruit that Knott's Berry Farm uh, was built on because it was Knott's Berry um, uh, Knott's uh, uh, yeah Knott's Berry Farm. That's right. Um, but. Wait a second, I've gone so far and I forgot. Oh, so but so what's the difference between a preserve and a jam? N not much. Not much. Not um, I mean, like, sort of technically speaking, a jam is a fruit spread that um, is made by cooking crushed fruit or sliced fruit with sugar. A preserve is chunks of fruit or perhaps whole fruit, small whole fruit, cherry preserves, um, 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 strawberry preserves if there's small strawberries. So it's whole fruit or large chunks of fruit that are cooked with sugar um, into a sort of thickened syrup. So that's the, that's the d difference between. But you know, a thick preserve um, is indistinguishable to my eye from a loose jam. So, you know, yes sir. Yeah. Um, so the um, the uh, the building water bath, the, the you know canning, the, the water bath canner canning uh, process is um, is the most up to date way to do it. That's that's current technology. Um, old technology is what my grandmother did, which is um, you know she would fill a jar and uh, and then she would seal it with paraffin wax. Um, and probably a, a lot of y'all have sort of seen that before, know about that. Um, that's called the open kettle method. Uh, I don't know why it's called that, because the kettle doesn't have anything to do with it. It's called, uh, you just don't process it. So open kettle method, you sterilize the jar first, you put the hot preserve in there, and then you seal it by whatever means. Maybe you put a lid on there, maybe you put paraffin wax. Um, if you go back uh, earlier, um, you know, I talked about Thane Prince um, sealing with cellophane. Uh, if you go back 19th century, you will find quite often uh, the call to seal um, sweet preserves with brandied papers, uh, which I've done. You take a piece of paper and you soak it in brandy, I mean, dunk it in brandy, and then you, you know, fold it over the top of the jar and you tie it with string. Um, the brandy, of course, is antiseptic, um, and the paper, you know, keeps mold spores and stuff from getting out. It, it actually, it, it works, um, you know, reasonably well. Um, if you go back even further, um, th you'll see calls for the um, Thomas Dawson, which is, um, you know, like 1593, sort of that era, um, talks about sealing things with cork or with animal bladders, like a pig bladder. So, you know, technologies, technologies change. Um, the, the water bath canner is the, is the most up to date. And as a master, as someone who was trained uh, in the master food preserving course, um, I am um, honor bound to advise you to always uh, use the, <laughs> the, 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 the hot boiling water bath uh, canning process in order to ensure um, you know, optimum uh, long-term shelf storage. Um, the fact of the matter is, you know, before people figured out how to do that, um, they were eating preserves for centuries, for centuries. Have you experimented with the, um, the other ways? I mean, you said you did the brandy paper, but have, yeah. you, have you tried them all out? I, I haven't tried the animal bladder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no pig guts. Is there a difference between the modern technology and the, the brandy paper or the other older ways? Well, it's, um, uh, is there a difference in... taste in the, in the way that no, the the um, not that I can you know like not that I can and notice. I mean, someone may have a, a more subtle um, discernment than I do, but um, the boiling water bath is you know you, you seal the jar, you put it in boiling water, um, usually for ten minutes. The recipe will tell you how long. Usually for for sweet preserves, it's always ten minutes, and that's ten minutes of heat 
does not, uh, as far as I can tell, affect sweet preserves at all. Um, pickles will soften, though, in the boiling water bath. Um, pickles will soften. And so for that reason, there are certain recipes like uh, cornichon, um, which call for, which I call for um, taking your, uh, your little teensy cucumbers, your little gherkins, um, you know, cleaning them, prepping them. You don't have much prep. You have to rub off the spines. You pack them into a jar. You put a, some tarragon in there and just a few, a very few um, pearl onions. And then you know what you do? You take white wine vinegar and just pour it over the top, cold. And then you put the lid on and, um, and stick it in the refrigerator if you want. Um, and so, you know, that's it. But the, the point of that is in order to maximize, in order to maintain as much um, texture, as much crunch or crispness um, in the vegetable, um, you would avoid uh, water bathing it. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. I have two questions. Okay, one at a time, please. Do you put pits in your, um, and do you smash them? Um, so the, um, the stone fruit, Prunus, uh, the genus Prunus, includes, of course, cherries, um, apricots, peaches, nectarines, and almonds. Right. And so all of the, um, our sweet almonds that we eat are um, a kind of a Bronze Age, um, uh, natural, um, um, uh, um, what do I want to say? Um, they, 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 they emerge spontaneously um, in the Bronze Age um, from the wild almond, which is a bitter almond. And a bitter almond is what is used to flavor mar marzipan, right? You know, like almond extract. That's, I mean, almond extract is usually like, whatever, created in a lab. But um, bitter almonds, you know, like wild bitter almonds is, is, um, is where that flavor comes from. Now, all of the other, and what that is, an almond is nothing but, you know, the kernel of the seed of this kind of, you know, plum-sized fruit, right? A little bigger than plum. Um, that flavor, that almond flavor, um, is common to all of the stone fruit. So if you, ch if you crack an um, apricot kernel, um, you get this wonderful and really quite strong um, uh, almond, uh, bitter almond amaretto flavor. flavor. Yeah, it's an amaretto flavor, exactly. Um, cherry pits have the same thing. And in France, if you were going to make a clafoutis, you would make a clafoutis with, um, you know, with whole cherries because some little essence of that, um, of that almond quality um, goes through the pit and infuses the, the clafoutis. Um, I, to answer your question finally, um, I do not um, pit my cherries, I mean I do not use the cherry pits just because it's too much damn work. It really is. Um, but I, I, I use um, almond, uh, I use apricot pits in uh, my apricot jam, so or at least I provide the option. Smash it so that the kernel comes out, or do you feel like yeah. you flavors it without? The yeah, you got it. You got it. Um, you sort of crack, crack the with a nutcracker, um, blanch it, slip them out of their skins, oh, okay. and then you use that um, the almond, which is white, moist, very pretty, and you just you put the kernels in there, and that's like that's special. That's really magic. Um, there's a lot of there's some dispute about that, and I, the, the most kind of serious and most like um, footnoted. Um, uh, essay in the, or piece in the book is about um, uh, apricot kernels. The, the what I'm the, this practice of using the kernel is pretty widespread in, in Europe and in England. Um, here, uh, what you hear is that the kernels have um, are dangerous. They have cyanide, cyanide in them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact, they do have they do uh, produce cyanide. Um, there's they have a there's a molecule called amygdalin that when it breaks down um, releases cyanide. Yeah. Um, and so there's a question of are they safe or are they not safe? Is it safe to use your, your apricot kernels? Um, the answer is yeah. Um, um, and I really like map it out in great detail. Um, but the answer is, is yes. And I interviewed like everybody in the world um, to, you know, I mean, we had like food scientists weighing in, like the head of the stone fruit, you know, division at, you know, at UC Davis was, you know what I mean? There were like, there were reports from the, you know, from the uh, um, uh, reports from um, English um, scholarly societies, academic medical societies, you know, but it's safe. You can do it. It's fine. And the reason why is that the, the heat um, in cooking, the heat volatilizes um, whatever we don't want to eat. Yeah. Okay, and then the second question is, are huckleberries from California or the Midwest? Um, there are a lot of different um, fruits of the genus uh, vaccinum, vac vaccinium, vaccinium um, that, are, um, that, that are called huckleberries. 
um, so are like all over the country. The same as the ones I eat up in San Luis Obispo? Uh, they're probably different varieties. They, yeah. they taste different. Yeah. I mean, there, there are literally dozens of different varieties of, of um, you know, and some are, are high bush, some are low bush. But we didn't invent them. No, huckleberries are a wild, a wild fruit. But we didn't invent them. Oh. <laughs> it looks like, it kind of looks like a mulberry, but it's, not, it's like a fat blackberry. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bramble. It's another bramble. Uh, no, a mulberry, a mulberry is, a, is this very it's special pretty, thing. No, but a huckleberry is a bramble. No, a huckleberry is, um, you know, a huckleberry is related to blueberries, and vaccinium also includes the cranberries, um, all of those native North American fruits that um, like acidic soil and cool climates. They're they're wonderful fruits. Um, let me uh, let's see. Let me let me. I was just thinking of one thing. Um, let's see if I can find this. Let me see if I can find this. Mulberries. Yeah. So, uh, Persian mulberries, sir, Persian mulberries are like fruit from a fairy tale, a familiar thing, the summer berry, transformed by preposterous imagination into something strange and enchanting. A besotted Titania orders her elves to fetch them for her, I'm sorry, to fetch them for her beloved bottom in a midsummer's night's dream. She says to the elves, be kind and courteous to this gentleman, hop in his walk and gamble in his eye, feed him with apricots and dewberries with purple grapes, green figs, and mulberries, blah, 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 blah. Um, but unlike the boysenberries, they resemble Persian mulberries, Morris nigra, grow in trees. So they're not a brambleberry, it's a tree. And they are so fragile that you can hardly pick them without, um, without them bursting. The taste seems almost too sweet, but then a dark inner core, um, kind of a wine-like quality emerges, and it's very poignant. Oh my God! You're kidding me. So much. And, uh, well, catch yourself lucky. Yeah, we we gave them out. Yeah. 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 No, but you know what you do? You make jam. <laughs> that's the point of that's the point of saving the season is that when you get when you've got the a particular thing at a particular moment and you've got that perfection of fruit, yeah. and vegetables as well, but fruit is more fleeting. You got the perfection of the fruit and you preserve it and you put it in a jar, and then six months from now, you go back and you open that jar, and you still have that perfection in the jar. And there's another thing, which is that you, you capture a moment, and then you can give that jar to somebody else, and they open it up, and they share that moment, and you create a community. Um, and that community is another way of talking about communion, perhaps, um, and it's another way of talking about like conversation, and it's another way of talking about um, all the other stuff that, I, that I'm referring to when I talk about saving the season. So that's, but that's, that's precisely what preserving is for. Everybody that got batched them was extremely happy. Yeah. They're wonderful fruit. It's, it's, it's really hard to find at the farmer's market, but yeah. they had just their treats were overflowing. Yeah. If you find it at the market, um, they, uh, they're about $10 a punnet this, this summer. Um, and it's worth it. Um, the other thing um, that this is, like this is, this week, in fact, what is today? No, we've already missed the market yesterday, the Wednesday market. But all of y'all go to the Hollywood Farmer's Market this weekend and look for this. Blood and apricots. I write about blood and apricots. They're, they're one of the signature fruits of California. They're a wonderful, wonderful, very special fruit. That's uh, Blenheims. Um, so the Blenheims are in. Um, the um, mulberries, the Persian mulberries are in, which are better than the Pakistani mulberries. You want the Persian mulberries. And, um, and then Snow Queen, uh, Snow Queen um, nectarines sometimes also known as Stanwyck nectarines. Um, it's a white nectarine. Um, white fruit uh, tends to be insipid. Like, who cares? Like, I don't care about a white peach. Um, but these snow queens have high, high, high acid. And they have high, high, high sugar. The bricks is like 25, which is like insane sugar. And there's this incredible dynamic between the acid and the sugar that is electrifying. And it is... It is the best stone fruit in the world, unless Blenheims are the best stone fruit in the world. <laughs> so this is the week you, you got to go out and, and learn about stone fruit. I'm sorry, I'm preaching now. I'll stop. <laughs> Any more questions? Yes, sir? So you go from the being under the United States now, and that's the preserver. Yes. 
Well, you know, I, I've, cooked, I've cooked since I was a, a teenager. I guess I started cooking dinner when I was a teenager. Um, I ate really well when I was growing up because, um, you know, at Grand and Papa's, Papa grew, um, they, they were not hobby farmers, they were like real farmers. And um, so Papa grew most of what they ate. And, um, and Grand was a, you know, was a real country cook, like good and plenty on the table. Um, and she cooked, you know, whatever was coming out of the garden, and, and um, she put up a lot of stuff. She preserved a lot of food. So I liked to eat, and um, and I had I was fortunate to have a very good training in in how to eat. Um, later, when I went to, um, I took a year off from school and a year off from college. Went to college for two years, and then I took a gap year, which became two gap years as I floated around uh, Berkeley, and kind of hung around Chez Panisse a little bit. And, um, and I learned um, that all of that stuff that Grand and Papa were doing um, was called like local and seasonal and organic and farm to table and you know and I was like oh I, yeah like that's 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 what they did. Um, so anyway, so I've I've been cooking for a long time, but it wasn't until um, really 2008 was when I started this preserving uh, odyssey. Um, I was at the farmers market, the Wednesday mar uh, the Saturday market in Santa Monica. And it was springtime, and the strawberries were out. And um, you know about, I already mentioned strawberries in here. Um, and uh, there was a whole table full of strawberries. Um, on page uh, 52, you've got a, must be seven years old, with a flat of strawberries. And there were all these strawberries, and I, like, I was like, oh my god. And so I got a whole flat of them. And as I'm going back to the car, I was like, <laughs> and that incredible fragrance made me think of Grand's Jam, and um, and she was already gone by then. So I, but I thought, you know, I can I can make this. I mean, I make pizza, I make bread, I make pasta. You know, like I know how to how to cook. Um, so um, I set out to make some jam, and it was um, to make Grand's Jam, and it was terrible. It was just terrible, and that frustration of not uh, getting it right, um, and not getting it right the second time, not getting it right the terrible. third time. Um, too much sugar. Uh, I used commercial pectin. Uh, I didn't know how to cook it, so I cooked it too long and too slow and too far. And it was, um, it just, it killed the fruit. You know, the point of, the point of all of this is to try to capture something of the, of the freshness of the fruit. And I just like, just stomped it under my foot. And, um, but that, that frustration was, was really what, you know, you know, made me want to try again. And very quickly, that, um, that little weekend hobby became an, a, a true obsession. Um, and I think that there was a, there, in fact, I know, I talk about my shrink in one of these things. Not much, y'all, but I just say I sat, on her, I, I sat on her couch for five years, and then I felt much better after that. Um, and those five years included the time um, that I was preserving. So there, there, I think there was, there was a kind of, um, you know, a, uh, an element of personal discovery that helped uh, fuel this obsession. But the obsession became a, a genuine obsession. Um, and I wound up quitting my job, you know, and like writing this book. Yeah. <laughs> I worked at W. I was on staff at W for 13 years. Um, I was, I started as a party reporter in New York. Um, I went on to write uh, features about the social world in New York, um, including some um, hatch jobs on prominent social women that, um, <laughs> that my editor loved. And I, um, I, I won the, the, the gold ring. Um, I, got the, the, I got sent to Paris as the European editor of the magazine. And I worked in Paris for four years. Um, in Europe, I wrote more about um, travel and so a little bit of food writing, um, the arts, culture. I did a little bit about you know, the aristocracy and the social world, although not that much. Uh, and then I moved out here, still with W, in 2004, I think it was. Uh, as the West Coast editor of the magazine. And out here, I wrote about um, Hollywood entertainment, um, art, mm, mainly the architecture, um, that kind of stuff, as a features writer. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir? Are you guys into uh, wine? Were you, were you well, I don't, I don't make any wine. I don't make any wine. Um, but um, I use, I, pardon me? I, I drink it, and in, in the introduction to um, to this uh, pickled grape recipe, um, Mrs. Plagerman's pickled grapes, which are really that's a wonderful recipe. Um, I say that it's um, that grapes are really hard to preserve, actually, unless you consider wine a preserve, which I which I kind of do. 
um, but I don't mess with wine. I cook with wine a lot, and I use wine in my preserves a lot, which I, is something kind of distinctive about um, about my preserving uh, practice. If you, well, you have a thing like apple brandy, or yeah, you could do it so many different yeah, dude. I mean, you got to get the book. You're like you're speaking my language already. Yeah, yeah. Um, eau de vies, uh, brandies, whiskies. Um, I, I use scotch in one of my uh, marmalades. Um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of booze. I mean, southerner, you know. <laughs> we we probably got to cut it off, but uh, ma'am. Oh. Okay, you can pick which one you want to ask. It's either I, I bought some mint jelly with like Reese's. Yeah. And then I put the refrigerator after a while and made crystals and it yeah. turned white. Yeah. And I want to know why that. That's, yeah. Okay. And the other one is like I bought a rhubarb pie from. Bars, yep. And then I didn't come and pick up until later that night. Yep. So when I brought it home, I, I tasted the, what is it called, the sauce, like the lupicarbo? Sure. Sauce, yeah. And it was chewy like a candy. And then I, I was going to give hmm. it to somebody. And then right. I didn't want to, I thought, I don't want to give this because something's wrong. And then when I put it in the refrigerator, and the next day I had some, and it went back to being soft. Now the pie, I don't know about. Okay. I, I can't okay. weigh in on that. Um, the um, the jelly is um, that that is a that's a flaw. It's it's an error, and um, and it happens sometimes. The the sugar is is recrystallizing um, for one of for one basic reason, which is to say that the there's too much sugar in there, um, so it has been over reduced. Um, it's been cooked too long, and you can't. As far as I know, it's not possible to. Um, uncrystallize it. You know, like you, honey, you know, like crystallized honey, you can, you can melt it in a, a, a pan of hot water. I don't think you can do that with jelly, although I've never actually tried it, uh, tried to do that. I had some pepper, red pepper jelly, and it turned, it looked like paraffin, like a, I don't know if it was, but it looked white. You know what they say, the, the old saying is, if in doubt, throw it out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's what yeah. I did. Um, now, I will, uh, um, Will you indulge me for one more thing? Because this is the other thing that everyone is so concerned about. When I say canning, what's the first word that comes to mind? Botulism. Yes. <laughs> that is right. Yes, ma'am. That is right. <laughs> so botulism. Bot what is botulism? Botulism is food poisoning, right? It's a food poisoning that's caused by ingesting a neurotoxin created by the bacterium, a class of bacteria called um, Clostridium botulinum. Clostridium botulinum is a spore-forming bacteria. It's ubiquitous in the natural world. The spores are like everywhere. Um, it's an anaerobic bacteria, which means that it grows in the absence of oxygen, right? So these spores are incredibly hardy. They're incredibly um, tough. Um, they, they will survive boiling in, in uh, they will survive boiling. Um, if you take one of those spores and you put it in a comfortable environment where there's uh, water, and nutrients, and a temperature range that's more or less the same temperature range that we like, and you exclude all oxygen, like in a sealed jar, um, those spores will, um, will start to um, divide. And as part of their metabolic process, they create this neurotoxin. If you eat the neurotoxin, it causes a uh, creeping paralysis that begins at the top of your head. I'm not making this up. Um, it begins at the top of your head, and it begins, and it descends. And one of the classic um, indications that someone is suffering botulism is that they can no longer move their, their, um, their face. And I'm not talking about Botox, which of course is from botulism, is from clostridium botulinum. That's the neurotoxin. But so this is real. So it comes down, and then you can't move your mouth, and then the creeping paralysis descends, and then it hits your vital organs, and then you die. And even in this day and age, um, there's no uh, remedy. Um, it will pass, the paralysis will pass within 48 to 72 hours, but if you don't have the function of your heart and lungs, you will be long dead. <laughs> so the only, the only thing you can do for, for botulism, for a case of botulism, is to rush somebody to the hospital, put them in an iron, iron lung, and keep them alive until um, it passes and, they regain, and their organs start to function again. All right, so we're now all really scared, right? But there is a silver bullet against botulism, and it is, Acidity. High acid foods, which for the purposes of food safety are defined as pH below 4.6, high acid foods are not susceptible to the risk of botulism. High acid foods include 
most of the fruits. Um, citrus, of course. Apples, berries, strawberries, um, peaches, all of the stone fruits. Um, all but a very few fruits are sufficiently acidic to eliminate the risk of botulism. So listen to me. You are never going to kill your friends and family with a jar of jam. The only way you can hurt someone with a jar of jam is by throwing it at them and hitting them. Um, low acid foods, like vegetables, like meat, um, that stuff is, is potentially uh, dangerous. And home canned, well canned to canned uh, low acid foods, you have to do it in a pressure canner or in an autoclave, which is the big industrial version of that, um, because that pressurized environment will increase the, um, uh, the, the boiling point of water, will increase the, the temperature, the atmospheric temperature within the container to above 240 degrees, and that will um, kill off the botulism. Um, or the other way that you preserve vegetables is you pour vinegar over them. And so you take that low acid vegetable and you cover it with a vinegar brine, um, and the acidity in vinegar will prevent the risk of botulism. Did I answer the question I was supposed to answer? It's just good news that we will kill our friends. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, this is um, this is what I say is that um, the uh, the preserves will um, the, the classic advice is, is to eat them within a year um, because for a year you know over the course of a year you will not notice uh, an appreciable uh, change in the the quality of the product. Um, some of the more delicate uh, berry preserves like a raspberry jam or like a wild strawberry jam I think they're best for you know like within six months and then the quality starts to fade a little bit. Um, some of the more durable preserves, like marmalade, um, can last for years, many years. And, um, and there's even in England a certain uh, sort of connoisseur's cult of vintage marmalades. Um, now, but here's, here's the thing. It's, if, the, if the preserve goes longer than that, the concern is not that a health risk emerges. The concern is that the quality of the product starts to fall off. So, you know, we're not stocking a bomb shelter. We're trying to find a nice condiment that we right. can eat. So we want to use, use it. You want to use the, you know, preserved lemons. Yeah. And then you're not really, yeah. you know, I just want to make sure that. Yeah. So use it, use it, within, use it within a year. Yeah. Um, the other reason you want to use it within a year is because next year this time, we're going to have more blended apricots that we got we to gotta no, preserve. And so. Yeah. 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 So maybe one more? One more? Okay. All right. Yes, ma'am. Um, so I just made jam for the first time last week, and I... Congratulations. I just wasn't sure about the pectin, so I tried to batch with it without, but I don't know if that's like, is that just preference? Well, pectin is the, is the second subject that, that people um, are most curious about or most concerned about. Um, and I, I give you, like, I'll give you the whole, like, pectin talk here um, in the book. Um, here's the short version. Um, pectin is um, naturally occurring in all fruits. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a molecule that makes up the part of the structure of the cell wall. Um, and pectin is, um, most fruits have sufficient natural pectin to make jam that, um, that, is, that reaches the consistency that we want it to reach. Um, and that could sometimes be like a full gel set, a jelly. You know, jelly is a full gel set, right? Um, this is just a thickened preserve. Those aren't quite fully set up. Um, it is possible, in fact, many people um, will add a commercial pectin um, supplement. Those commercial pectin supplements are not inherently like unnatural. Um, they are derived from uh, either citrus, which is a very high pectin fruit, um, or apples, which is a very high pectin fruit. Um, and they, they have their place and they have their purpose. And there's, there's one recipe in here for um, cherry preserves uh, using powdered pectin. Um, just to sort of demonstrate like what it's about and why you might use it and blah 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 and to give you an option to you know like the, the old-fashioned way the old-fashioned way is cherries plus currant juice but you know like we have to make some concession to like reality um, so you know you might want to use pectin sometime but the point is that for most preserves most preserves in my opinion it's not necessary to add additional pectin supplements because there's sufficient natural pectin in the fruit to make a very delicious and satisfying preserve with only those two elemental ingredients of 
fruit and sugar. All right. Well, you you get my book and you use my recipes. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.